0: Hello and welcome to a new episode of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. We're on Series 8 and as regular listeners will know, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. The Covid virus is still very much with us and at the time of recording, England is once again in lockdown. That being the case, we thought it prudent to record this series over the internet. Nevertheless, I'm very happy to say that my guest this week is Thomas Libertini. The artist and designer was born in Slovakia, but currently lives and works in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. He burst into the wider consciousness with his honeycomb vase during Milan's design week in 2007. For the extraordinary piece, Libertini constructed vase-shaped beehive scaffolds and essentially let nature take its course in a process he dubbed slow prototyping. The beeswax work took one week and approximately 40,000 bees to create. It's now in MoMA's permanent collection in New York. Since then, the designer has worked with a range of other materials, including paper which he turned on a lathe, ink from BIC biros and hand-welded layers of stainless steel, as well as refining the Made in Bees series. He's had major solo exhibitions in Amsterdam, Rotterdam and Brussels, while his pieces are in the permanent collections of the Cincinnati Art Museum, the Corning Museum of Glass, and the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, to name just a handful. Thomas, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you,
1: Grant. Finally, we get to uh, (laughs) speak to each other in a proper manner. You've uh, written a few articles about my work, so I really appreciate it that we get to extend our communication. channels. (laughs)
0: It's a pleasure to talk to you. It's a complete pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. I'm looking forward. One of the first things we do in this podcast is get the guests to describe their studio space, where they work. I don't know, are you in where you work at the moment or where are you right now? No, um,
1: I am at home right now because I thought it would be more appropriate for our conversation to kind of slow down and not be distracted by the work environment you know i'm sitting in my library which is full of books and that's uh, the place where i like to contemplate so i thought it would be more fitting to uh, speak with you in this context rather than in the studio in that case we'll cheat a little bit uh, can you describe your studio <laughs> well <laughs> that will be easy it's the same studio i've had maybe since 2009 so, almost 11 years. It's a large space uh, in the center of Rotterdam. It's half underground, half above the ground. So, it is sort of a, uh, a basement, but it has a daylight. And it's a former post office building mm. near the central station, Rotterdam. It's generous with space. I have lots of storage room and, uh, different spaces for different activities i have a painting studio i have the office i have photo studio i have a casting room welding room uh, sanding you know uh, storage mm. so i feel quite privileged with the studio that i have uh, in the Rotterdam. but i miss daylight yeah. that would have been a, a little upgrade do you have a team um i work on and off with people depending on the projects of course internship is a regular occurrence but in terms of uh, staff a lot of times it's better to work on projects together Mm. so i keep it flexible instead of
0: having a permanent team of five six people Mm. and how are the netherlands with the pandemic at the moment i mean we're all stuck at home in england What's the situation where you are? Well, this is an interesting thing
1: uh, with the Dutch landscape, politically, economically, socially. It's always been quite a liberal country and they don't like being told what to do. So I've noticed it early on, probably sometime in March this year, when the first, let's say, uh, limitations came across uh, different spheres of life in the cities and in the country, traveling included. I traveled a lot to Brussels and it was a stark contrast between how the people in Belgium and people in Holland handled the pandemic. Mm. It looked like nothing was happening in Holland and there was a crisis in Brussels. Uh, So just hoping on the train, I could see a big difference the Dutch are handling it quite blase, I would say. unless there is a stiff regulation from above, they tend to act like it doesn't exist uh, in some sense, right? But I have to say it depends on socio-economical, ethnical differences. So different groups, different, You know, wealth, different ethnic background uh, has a different reaction to following the regulations or, let's say, looking at them with more seriousness than less seriousness, which is interesting to observe. Yeah, yeah. Is everything open? Right now, we are in the same situation as you are. So the museums are closed. I think it was about two weeks ago that all these tough measures uh, came back again. So it's a little bit like uh, the first wave, but not that strong. Right. We kind of got used to it. So things are limited and businesses have adjusted. So for example, restaurants are closed, but they are now doing regularly takeaways. Even the restaurants that have never done it before on a sort of luxury level uh, restaurants, they also adapted. It. So it's not only the fast food uh, industry, but also high-end restaurants, which is interesting to see. And uh, lots of different businesses have adopted as well. So,
0: And how has it affected you, Tomas? Well, you're asking from
1: like the beginning or of right now, the second wave? Well, we could do both. Well, the first wave was a blessing, not in a wrong way, like I am pro lockdown. We finished a major project just before the lockdown and I was ready to work on other projects over the coming months in a sort of you know, quiet way. So it came like a gift uh, that uh, a lot of things around me slowed down and there was no fast paced rhythm to, you know, make you feel anxiety that you're missing out. But it affected me in a way that lots of projects were uh, scheduled to, you know, materialize this summer. For example, we were invited to do the Venice Architecture Biennale and, right. and we were really busy with the proposal and uh, realization of it you know then it got postponed until september then it got cancelled and pushed to next year so in that sense we feel it and um, some exhibitions were cancelled but i didn't have anything that totally disrupted my workflow in that sense so uh, we finished a major project and a lot of projects were scheduled to be realized either 2021 or We just have more time to make them.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I noticed you spent some time hosting your own chat show, really, (laughs) the bus Chairs conversations. Right. You have a competition. Yeah, I do. I do. I don't like it. (laughs) How did those start? Well, it started because uh, it's been quite
1: some time, but uh, I've uh, designed, uh, sculpted this marble chair in Italy, and uh, we had it here, and the pandemic hit, and I thought it would have been really nice if we could use this chair which i thought it would be nice to be placed in nature to invite people to sit on this chair and speak about the pandemic being seated in the chair in the context of nature because you know i like nature i think it's important and Mm. this thing with us having limited access to socializing and going anywhere nature was the only escape that we had at that time so people were a lot in the park or just seeking places to you know socialize in a way that it's still permitted and nature and parks was the place which was interesting to see to observe that people still feel this way once the whole rush of the city and rhythm of uh, fast-paced work sleep is over this is really uh, Mm. something we've been missing and i wanted to talk to people about this Effect uh, that the pandemic made us slow down, and uh, yeah, we invited them to sit in nature. So the the concept was to speak with twelve important Dutch arts and culture people. It was interesting this whole wide range of people.
0: Yeah, I mean they last about half an hour. You had quite a big crew by the look of it. Did you enjoy being a host? I was a little bit nervous to start with. I've realized that it did
1: me really well. I've really enjoyed talking to other people i didn't know i was a good listener but i found out i'm a good listener i was afraid that with some people i wouldn't have enough experience and knowledge to have an equal conversation and uh, you'll see that everybody is sort of naked in front of the camera like there is nobody who's not aware is not afraid we're all human so it was interesting to see that we're all the same in some sense, uh, in front of the camera. Now now being on the other side, asking questions, I've noticed that everybody has a little bit of unrest just before the shooting, (laughs) which was really cute uh, to see that, you know, people with 20, 30 years of experience of public talk and selling to clients still have a little bit of that self-awareness in front of the camera, being afraid to say something wrong. So that was interesting, but... um, I really enjoyed it. I must say uh, it was an eye-opener for me. Maybe I should do it more often.
0: (laughs) I was going to say, will there be more?
1: Well, first, we still have to put online the last two conversations. Right. And after that, uh, we'll see what happens. And We have another lockdown. But I thought maybe to speak to another group of people, let's say a younger generation, because in some sense, I interviewed or conversed with, let's say, more experienced demographics uh, within arts and culture so it would be nice to speak to younger
0: generation uh, how they felt about this i noticed that you gave your guests a present at the end of each show i did yeah it's important to point out that you don't get that here i'm afraid (laughs) speaking with you is a gift (laughs) very good very good (laughs) the purpose of this podcast is to talk about materials you've developed this global reputation over the past decade or more for producing these really exquisite objects created by bees and made from beeswax. The first piece was shown in Milan in 2007, as we said. Can we talk a bit about the process, Tomas? How are these pieces made? Sure. Thank you for the nice compliments
1: you gave to this project. I appreciate it. The project started sometime between 2005 and 2006, when I was interested predominantly in consumer culture and i studied conceptual design in consequence um, not that i necessarily wanted to become an industrial designer but i was interested in everyday objects and the whole myth and tradition surrounding rituals and of course there was lots of Ron Arad and philip stark and that to be looked at and uh, enjoyed and criticized i already noticed there was a lot of this macho culture going on in industrial design where the materials that were used were very masculine Mm -hmm. i don't know how to describe it properly but i felt to look at history of making objects from a different perspective and i wanted to choose an antagonistic material which was totally counterintuitive to let's say industrial production and beeswax came across as an interesting choice because it was so vulnerable mm. like it's the total opposite of functionality
0: when you say vulnerable what do you mean by vulnerable what i mean it's uh,
1: sensitive to pressure sensitive to heat sensitive to light mm. in that kind of a sense it's vulnerable um i don't know if that necessarily means vulnerable i mean everything is subject to external forces in some way it felt mummable, uh, so mm. it's easy to destroy, it's easy to affect, and of course, if you have wax objects, the most iconic is a candle. once you use it, it disappears. It's not something that you can reuse again. Mm. So
0: in that sense, vulnerable.: Very good, sorry, I disturbed your flow because we're just in the middle of the process.
1: Oh sure, no, I can I know <laughs> well, so I, I left it at choosing beeswax as a, yes, um, you chose beeswax. As a material of choice, <laughs> and I started doing a lots of research around it. Of course, we all know it comes from the bees, and, but that is probably as much as I knew at that time. So I started talking to beekeepers a lot about the process of how beeswax is created and then in consequence learning a little bit about the bees. So the first objects that came from there were revolving around the idea of a vase or a vessel or an amphora because I thought it was very fitting the whole circle of life from flowers through the beehive back to the flowers so it had a bit of that circular not yin yang but the kind of complete journey the bees collect the pollen from flowers use it as energy to produce beeswax create the amphora or the vase and then the flowers on their last journey as cut flowers are put in that vase Mm. it made it very you know, complete. Uh, so that's why the vase is not any other object such as a chair or a lamp or you name it. It wouldn't have a proper meaning in that context. I started experimenting with different methods of having bees create something that I could recognize and um, beekeepers also didn't know much about the outcome because I proposed something that was not yet or nobody ever made anything like that before. So We didn't have any reference. We had a lot of trial and errors, objects collapsing in the beehive or bees overbuilding everything. Eventually, when a vase came out, I didn't know what to think. Because when you study industrial design and you study engineering or architecture, you grow up with the idea that what is your plan is also your desired outcome. So you're very specific about your wishes for the end result. And uh, with that mentality, I approach also the work with the bees, but the outcome was never the same as a sketch or the proposal itself. So once the result was revealed, I wasn't sure whether to be happy or disappointed, which taught me an interesting lesson about certain uh, humility and modesty towards nature that, you know, um, it's about accepting what is in front of you rather than um, being a little dictator. <laughs> Uh, like a lot of designers are you know with yes. their approach to it, it has to be like this and radius like that and millimeters and suddenly there's a process that is intrinsically hard to control so you have to get used to uh, being less of a uh, engineer and more of the conductor within the limitations of the players who are in your orchestra so you Design the music according to the capabilities of the individual players. So I thought it was an interesting shift from me being very specific uh, to being more open to what could be the outcome.
0: Mm. You've compared it to growing a bonsai tree in the past, I think.
1: I did, yeah. You regularly have to open a beehive and have a look at how it's going on. So I designed the skeletons, and they don't always follow these templates uh, that I give them. So I have to stir them sometimes by cutting off the overgrown pieces and then they clean it up and they continue building somewhere else. So you steer the growth of the honeycomb chambers or these cells. And that's what I meant by you know growing a bonsai that you cut and then they move somewhere else and then you cut that and uh, they move somewhere else. So it is a back and forth process. It's not a push-of-a-button automation
0: unit. Mm. And did you have to work hard to get the beekeepers themselves on side, Thomas?
1: In the beginning, and I have to say still, it's very rewarding uh, for the beekeepers because for most of them, they've never seen anything like this before. So they are very happy to participate and help me with making of these sculptures and uh, projects. Sometimes they're very proud of their bees like this they call them art bees like they're little artists uh, because the, the <laughs> skill is in them they just haven't explored it they have used it for other means you know harvesting honey and uh, growing the colony in a very kind of uh, modernistic way because beehives are designed uh, sort of as a modern architecture mm. it all started sometime in the mid 19th century
0: you talk about it being a critique of Industrial production and looking to, well, I guess almost feminize the process or, or the, the use of yeah. materials. Was it just coincidence that when you started making these, that bees started disappearing? You had colony collapse disorder. It was a coincidence. Right. So it wasn't part of your thinking. No, I, I think I just sensed it.
1: It's my strength, but also weakness. Uh, I'm quite sensitive. And I felt this was, you know, like when I saw these polished chairs of Ronarad, I love them, but, uh, you know, this kind of whole visual vocabulary of the 80s and 90s everything is slick and shiny and hard and and then you miss that kind of softness i felt this was an interesting way to make a critique but not necessarily as a social justice warrior but more in combination with making something beautiful i don't like making statements just for the sake of it i like that to be part of making something beautiful as a sculptor or a painter or a photographer, an object to cherish. So it was a critique uh, and I was surprised that around the same time Al gore came with the inconvenient truth. I think it was just when I did these vases and then the whole spirit of, you know, broad public being aware of global warming a necessity to kind of reorient the economies towards more sustainable production, but also lifestyles. So demanding consumers to demand different ways of production or different products in that sense, being more responsible came along. So it became part of that vocabulary, and it got adopted by, let's say, more the design crowd as a vehicle for this uh, conversation. Mm.
0: And presumably, you didn't mind that? No, because I agree with
1: it uh, totally. It just didn't start as that. It started much more artistically with reading Dostoevsky and Brothers Karamazov. And I got struck by the idea that he used a main character as a non-hero character. So he starts the book by introducing to the reader that the idea that in this book you will not find a traditional hero. This hero is weak. uh, He is not very interesting. Very mediocre, but you will discover that through the book that he is the most consistent and most solid character in the book who survives it all. And I thought, what a brilliant way of trying to choose my hero as a beeswax is for me in my story that something that seems extremely soft and vulnerable and tragic becomes something very long lasting. Because, and I say it. Beeswax is one of the most durable natural materials in the world. It will last easily 2,000 years without deterioration. And we use beeswax for sealing furniture, so it, uh, it's protected. We use it in the food industry, in uh, cosmetics. And yeah, bees produce it by themselves, so it is also sustainable in some sense. So I chose a hero like Dostoevsky that seems weak, mm. but in the long run is extremely
0: strong. Mm. One of the things I'm interested in, and listening to you talk just there, is you use the word beauty with abandon, and it seems to me that designers and, and architects, in particular, are quite wary of the word beauty. But it doesn't—you're happy to use it. How do you define beauty? I wonder.
1: That's a very good question. Uh, I'm glad you asked it. I don't think beauty is uh, definable in a general sense where you say uh, there is an absolute. I am not afraid of beauty. I like beautiful things. I think. When I started studying, I wanted to become an artist, but at that time, the art was more into wanting to be ugly on purpose. Mm. So I started to be interested maybe much more in design of objects because they didn't mind it. But I read this really interesting uh, book about 10 years ago by Arthur Danto. He's the American philosopher and art critic, and he wrote a book about beauty, and he said that the whole idea on uh, the divorce between art and beauty started around the time of Duchamp, where he rejected beauty, and he rejected it because he associated beauty with bourgeoisie, or something has to do with money. Mm. and uh, I think it was more of a statement it was not that art shouldn't be beautiful it was a particular statement and unfortunately the art world adopted this notion that art should not be beautiful I think it's disappearing slowly so that's really nice to see but the idea is that art doesn't have to be beautiful but it doesn't have to avoid it if it can be why not uh, so I think there's a whole premise it doesn't have to be but if it can you shouldn't avoid it. So that's sort of my my vision or my opinion about art and beauty. So you're not avoiding it. In other words, no. I mean, we all seek it. I mean, it would be so counterintuitive to try to avoid it. It's like causing yourself. Like <laughs> we all like things that please us, and obviously beauty pleases us in some sense. And too much of it is, of course, not good. So it is all about. Dosage. I mean, we all like chocolate. It feels good, uh, but eating it all the time is also not healthy. And um, the same goes for uh, good wine, sex, you name it. There are things that have their time and amounts, and um, you deal with it in that way, I think.
0: Okay. I mean, when you created that first piece back in 2006, 2007, did you think you'd still be working with the process 13 years later? No way. (laughs) How have you refined that process over the years?
1: Uh, that's a good question, Grant. Actually, when I made the first pieces, I thought I was done. Right. And uh, here we are, uh, let's say <laughs> 14 years later, and I'm still excited about making new, new works. So to answer your question, I didn't plan on it. The second question was?
0: Well, how you refined the process over that time.
1: Oh, right. So I started working with more complicated, well, let's say I challenged the way I work with bees in terms of. Size, complexity, and color and conditions. First, vases were quite small. Then I um, diverted from vases and started to make much more sculptural objects. I'm still busy with that idea, basically trying to make it more complex, Mm. maybe bigger in size and uh, refer... And play with the meaning it creates after it's made and installed in a gallery or in a museum or in a different context. Um, or just a picture. Uh, sometimes that's enough to communicate the idea. I would love to see it one day in an architectural scale. So we're busy with having bees design in a small scale, an architectural form. And then we would scale it up you know, scan it, scale it up and then fabricate in different materials. So using bees a sort of a quantum computer to calculate architectural tensions on a small scale. And then uh, we use that as a foundation to build it in a different scale from different material. A little bit like architects use complex softwares to design their buildings. I have this biological quantum computer called Beehive to design a a building or a facade or a gate or what
0: have you. I'm very intrigued by that. So how do you go about doing that? Presumably you set some framework up for the bees to follow. Yeah, so in
1: the beginning we had uh, very rudimentary methods where I would design this kind of positive negative spaces to be like mold making and uh that didn't always work because bees like to work within a very small confined spaces but then it's hard to take it out then uh, i introduced uh, let's say copper skeletons uh, wooden skeletons and um, right now we are 3d printing complex skeletons it's it proved to be the best method so Mm. we uh, design most of the sculptures on computer and then we 3D printed, yeah. And then we used that as a foundation.
0: So something like The Agreement, which is a 1.6 meter tall sculpture outside the Natural History Museum in London, right. that would have been 3D printed originally, and then the bees worked on it.
1: That was an exception to the rule. Okay. It was a very complex method of creating a hollow, double-curved surface form. It was sort of like a pipe bending and an opening uh, that looks like a flower. And I wanted it to be completely hollow. So we had to create um, a skin for the bees to build on. But we also had to create a load-bearing skin, offset it next to it. We did it with etching metal. So we were using uh, stainless steel, very thin stainless steel sheets. And we etched those So using this photographic method where you project a film on a, on a surface. And then the acid eats away the lines. So it was very, very precise a way of getting metal strips but they were bent in 3D they were under tension and we had to use a software for designing boats which you use to, to calculate how the wood bends when you make the body of a boat so there was interesting kind of cross different sources different methods so i tried to make these skeletons different way all the time but right now we're busy with 3D printing but i tried Everything that's possible from metals, right. etching, uh, you know, acrylic, depending on form and what it needs. I also made the unbearable lightness, which was this Jesus like figure uh, floating in the space with red skin, uh, red beeswax skin. And that was the inside was completely 3D printed, glass like foundation.
0: Can we talk about your background? You were born in Slovakia. Your father was an architect. Yeah. Your mother a historian. Yes. How has that shaped your career, I wonder? <sighs> There's obviously a huge literary background in your household, I'm guessing. Um, I grew up with books. That's correct. My birthday
1: presents were always books. Depends on who gave the, me the books. or so sometimes it was geography. Uh, my father always gave me, this is interesting, my father always gave me books about nature and art i only look at it back now like oh yeah there was always nature geography uh these kind of things yeah and uh, mom would give me more uh, literary kind of you know fiction uh, books to read but everywhere i went whether it was my grandparents from my mother or my father they both had huge libraries so yeah that affected me. So in that sense, I grew up in an intellectual family.
0: Mm. There was art in the house, obviously. Were you
1: constantly making things? I was actually constantly uh, disassembling things. Uh, right. That was one of the tragedy of my parents in my childhood, that uh, when something arrived at home new, I would probably take it apart and <laughs> not be able to put it back <laughs> together. I was always not making as uh, really interesting uh, when I look at it. I was always taking things
0: apart. You were encouraged to do that, or did they get irritated when they got home to discover everything? No, 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 they got irritated, of
1: course, uh, but uh, I would be endlessly curious. so I was more seeking probably knowledge and understanding rather than trying to be expressive. you know, if you look at it right. from the point of view of create, you create to express yourself. And I put things apart to be able to understand how things work. And I still think, yeah, and I still think I carry that kind of sense of, like, I'm interested in the making of things more than probably the end result. Or I'm interested in both. That's why we're still talking. Material matters.
0: It's interesting because, I mean, you talk about this knowledge of how things are made and why they're made. And you started by studying engineering and design in Slovakia. Then you went to the University of Washington, yeah. where you focused on painting and sculpture. Yeah. And I'm wondering how that shift came about.
1: I think I felt in my uh, 20s that engineering wasn't enough in terms of being complete. Uh, so I knew that I was driven towards art one way or another. I just probably wasn't willing to accept at that time that I'm more an artist than, let's say, an industrial designer or an architect. Mm. Mm. because of, let's say, more inputs and the complexity of my thinking. When I studied in Slovakia, probably I I sucked out everything I can. I, I need more. I'm curious more about what's in America, what's in stock there. And I wanted to taste that educational process and be exposed to American art, American museums, yeah, the culture. And I think art, education there served me uh, served me well because it was so broad uh, I could involve different things in the studies rather than just engineering
0: from there you went on to the Academy of Fine Arts and Design in Bratislava right before going on to the Design Academy Eindhoven where you received your MFA mm-hmm. i mean that's a lot of time in education did you stay so long because you thought your work wasn't ready mm, it seems long but
1: I just did a lot within a short period of time. Um, So I think I studied within six years uh, or seven years, five places. So it seems like I studied a long time, but I graduated when I was 26, Mm. uh, 27, something like that. I think I couldn't stay at one place for more than two years. I felt I've squeezed out uh, a lot and there was nothing more to squeeze out after two years. So I think that's why this kind of hopping from different place.
0: Yeah. What did your student work look like? Mm. Maybe when you left Bratislava for Eindhoven, what kind of things were you doing? That's interesting. I had a lot of actually
1: uh, works that were referring to nature. Um, That's interesting. Um, I had lots of student projects that dealt with nature, mathematics, mathematics. And I had a huge uh, painting portfolio, so I did a lot of painting, drawing. That was sort of my student work, mm. experiments in uh, nature and mathematics. I think the mathematics has something to do with father's uh, discipline, so architecture. And so it's kind of logic uh, behind nature. What Olaf or Eliasson made his over with, obsession with geometries and uh, things like So I was uh, already then... Uh, busy with those things nature and uh, mathematics mm. mm. now it's not even a surprise that i'm busy with <laughs> bees uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: you make me realize things grand well there you go that's that's why we're here that's your gift <laughs> it is i'm glad i've got one were the bees happening in eindhoven or after you left it started in eindhoven yeah it started in eindhoven one of my
1: first projects there was i was doing a big research on coca-cola Right. And I did this big project about Coca Cola, doing lots of research um, and some design artworks. And I think it stemmed from there, where it was a critique on, let's say, the product, the iconic image of it, and then this artificial sugar overload uh, of the whole drink. And I think that sugar thing led me to the bees somehow. Right. uh, Critique of consumer culture because it's, it's such a such a thing like even Ai Wei has this uh, Coca-Cola on a Chinese vase like you not go criticizing consumer culture and uh, let's say capitalism by not using Coca-Cola in one way like mm. once somewhere you know <laughs> I think it started there with uh, Coca-Cola and I recently used it again after 14 years In
0: my last show now
1: in amsterdam so back to coca-cola
0: back to coca-cola all roads lead to coca-cola um Mm. i want to change tack slightly because there's been a very lively debate about copying in design in the uk this year sure that was created by the designer simon brewster who started a high profile campaign against a manufacturer that hadn't paid her for her designs before putting something extremely similar out on the market i mean it's a problem you've had your own brush with Back in 2013, there was an advert mm. for Dewars, which had a sculpture of a bottle of whiskey made by bees. Yeah. How did you feel when you saw that?
1: I was outraged. And the reason was not because there was a context. The, the advertising agency behind it, the Canadian advertising agency, contacted me. They wanted to do this with me. And they, I think a few hours before the conference phone call, they pulled out. They said, well, uh, small internal changes will contact you when we are ready and then nothing happened and then i think it was half a half year later or like three quarters of a year they came out with this project it was advertising a uh, project uh, where they commissioned somebody from california to do this but it was so similar in many ways to what i did that In the very instance, I was uh, pissed, uh, <laughs> but then I calmed <laughs> down. I mean, uh, it is what it is. It was an interesting subject because just around the same time, uh, somebody else uh, approached me that wanted to make a copy of my uh, work as a study for school project. Right. And I yeah. thought, that's interesting. Uh, I got involved and uh, the student... She made a replica of my honeycomb vase that's in MoMA, trying to replicate the process. So I gave her hints and she tried to make it similar without having all the information, sort of like reverse engineering it. Yeah, yeah. And then she displayed it in the gallery in a show and I thought it was very nice. Then I wrote, I think you're referring to the essay I wrote uh, on the zine.
0: Yeah, yeah, subsequently, where you you kind of pointed out that, that in your view, there was a place for copying in design education. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think
1: it's absolutely necessary. And I think there is a lack of it, uh, on the contrary. I think it should be much more encouraged. Copying is a way of learning. We just somehow became so obsessed with the whole issue of copyrights and being original and unique and uh, you know new, that we somehow don't realize that part of growing is to grow on shoulders of others. There is another issue, of course, exploiting it financially, but that's a mm. different subject. I think in education, I would totally encourage, you know, if you study furniture design, make a replica of Eames furniture. So reverse engineer it, uh, or make it make it yourself uh, to understand how these things are made. Instead of taking it for granted, like just looking at the sketches, having a hands-on experience on could I make it myself? Because at the time, if you look at the books of um, the Eames couple, you see how much of their initial processes were all studio-based. It was not all factories, production companies. A lot of them were initiated in the studio with their own means of making models. So I think that's interesting to learn by copying others but it all, of course, I have wrote the essay in defense of copying, but with a tongue-in-cheek reference to, you know, exploiting intellectual property.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the other interesting thing about that piece, and we've talked about your love of reading, is that you write with quite a dash. I mean, you quote everybody from Bruce Lee to Picasso in the same piece. <laughs> oh, thank um, you. <laughs> that's all right. So writing is presumably very important to you. I do write,
1: but I don't write enough, I think because there is no incentive for me to write. I mean, I don't get a regular place in any um, newspaper or magazine. So it sometimes is about opportunities and it costs time and energy. I feel like I'm a little bit of a perfectionist. So to write a piece, and I'm sure you know, it's not you're sitting one afternoon probably also take uh, quite some time you write the first draft second draft you go over it you erase it can take you a couple of weeks to write something
0: meaningful that you're happy with i just plat it out thomas for money no i don't believe it <laughs> That's you're true, a pro actually. you don't do it like that <laughs> <laughs> no let,
1: let's sell the idea that grand works
0: uh yeah uh, let's for, do that for months Yeah, yeah. yeah. Pay me more money for it. That's what I want. (laughs) Exactly. There's another quote of yours that I like, which wasn't from the design piece, it's from somewhere else, Mm -hmm. where you said, I don't think one should expect anything from contemporary art. Let's think of it like a cat. So I'm interested to know how art is like a cat. Art is like a cat because when you walk into a
1: gallery or a museum, we come there with sort of these preconceptions that art should please us or art should anger us or that somehow art, museum, gallery owes us something. And we come there a little bit with the same sensation like we come to a movie theater where we've seen the trailer and we have these expectations that this is going to be a really entertaining movie and this is going to be really a a great comedy, lots of laughs, and we're going to leave this uh, place and then we're going to get a drink, all good mood art works in mysterious ways and i compared it to a cat because i'm a dog lover and um <laughs> i love cats as well and we have cats in slovakia so i i kind of like i grew up with cats as well but cat is such a creature that it doesn't work on a command uh, it's there when you let it come to you and It will gift you its presence, but you can't be overwhelmingly dwelling on expectations from a pet like that. Every time you get pleasure from a cat, it's almost like in unexpected times when you come home and you're sad and the cat feels it and it comes to you and it comforts you. And it's not always something you can rely on, but somehow... It reveals it's, its true nature. It's very independent from, it's not like a tool that you just grab when you need it or a medicine. I think it's similar with art. Artists don't work like this, they somehow reflect the current situation that we live in. And you come to a museum or to a gallery or you look and you look things online and you just have to look at it as a testimony of the time we live in, but it is not your that's supposed to please you just kind of have to wait for it to grant you its presence and it reveals reveal itself and sometimes works of art are you know ahead of time and uh, they are not uh, easily consumable they will be more consumable in two decades when there is enough visual and other type of vocabulary present that you can properly consume it And there are many examples of artworks like that. So yeah, I compared it to a cat more than to a dog. I think design is more like a dog.
0: Well, I was going to ask you that because you are doing that much more to command, right? We tend to be, if you're an industrial designer, at least you're working to commission or a brief.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you also use tools to cater to somebody's needs. You are much more in service Mm. to society, which I think is equally important. But design is much more about being maybe a doctor than a musician. I think we all need doctors, but we don't necessarily need musicians to survive. But uh, you can uh, you can argue about that. I think if you ask somebody else, they say I can't live without music or you can't live without art. Well, but you know you can't live with cancer. You can't survive certain diseases either. So there's this pyramid, you know, shelter, clothes, food, and uh I don't know what the pyramid is called. I think we
0: have to Google it. <laughs> well, you've opened a can of worms there, which I'm not sure I'm going to go any further into. <laughs> but um, what we've discovered in this hour we've had talking together is that you're a man of many parts. And aside from the Maze by Bee series, you're also a photographer. And there are pieces where you've used other materials, your paper vases that are turned on a lathe, spring to mind. Mm-hmm. I was particularly interested in the work that uses ink from Bic Byros. How did that come about?
1: Yeah. yeah. I think it's also a really early work, uh, or it started really early, maybe two years uh, after the Bees. I was really interested in the big ink pen, uh, which, by the way, is in the Museum of Modern Arts uh, permanent collection as an industrial design object. And and I find it extremely interesting for the reasons why it's there and uh, its design. But I was interested in, uh, in the ink itself and somehow my painterly history kicked in and um, it's becoming sort of this complementary thing to the work with bees, which is almost predominantly yellow and I have the blue. And now I'm waiting for my red period.
0: <laughs> You've done red, though. Your vases are red sometimes. Yeah, it is. its is
1: it it is. it, um, it is. Uh, I, um, So let me first finish the blue, yes, and then I sorry, can explain I'm why on. some beeswax uh, <laughs> pieces are red. I think there is something beautiful about the depth and the sort of the melancholy of the blue color. It's a really interesting color. It has a beautiful history, reasons why it was used already in antiquity, what sources it was made from from which natural materials it was made from and in general history of colors is interesting to to see which colors were valuable most valuable at what times and what periods they are reflected in fashion i found blue like one of those mysterious colors and uh, because probably i tend to be interested in things that are somehow unknown Mysterious and spiritual. I, I think the blue is is a very good medium to draw the audience into that same mood of contemplation. So I like the blue ink because of its chemical composition. When applied on different materials, I made many mixed experiments with different surfaces, and I found out if you use certain types of woods, the big ink acts iridescent like a butterfly wing. Uh, so we looked at the microscopic images of the butterfly wing, and I found out that there are these membranes that uh, trickle down like Christmas tree, which shortens the wavelength of the light hitting the, these, these chambers. Because of shortening them, these wavelengths have different scale between the purples and the blues. Because uh, if you look at the spectrum, I don't know which wavelength is the blues, what, how many nanometers. But this is the effect. So channeling it down. Certain types of woods we found out when they, when you cut it in the right angle, there are uh, tiny tubes. And when you apply ink and the ink is on the inside of these minuscule tubes, mm. when the light gets trapped inside and if you look at it from different angles, it creates the same effect. So with this, I almost designed the, the way to make these, what I call bluescapes, using certain type of wood and layering the big ink on the wood to achieve this butterfly uh, wing effect. And uh, now I'm continuously busy still with sort of painting with the big ink because it's made uh, from this mixture of pigments and chemicals that uh, act really well on dry surfaces uh, such as wood it's designed to be used on paper therefore uh, wood is like
0: a grandmother of paper it's fascinating because i thought you'd tell me about you know the disposability of the big pens no, 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 and we'd have a discussion about sustainability but that's not behind this absolutely
1: no no It tends to look like it. Yeah. But uh, I was more interested in the melancholy of the blue than, let's say, the disposability of the pen, like you named it. But I think it's a huge problem as well. And uh, I absolutely agree with it. But I'm not the type of artist that would, um, like, uh, my good friend uh, Hayward. What's his name? The British designer that makes uh, chandeliers out of collecting... uh, Stuart Haygarth. Stuart, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Yeah. I I don't know why I said Hayward. He makes absolutely stunning pieces and they directly communicate this idea. So I think the work is done there in this territory. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing to be more done there. So Stuart got it. Uh, I think the, the message is clear and he managed
0: to also create something beautiful with it. Kudos. Yeah, well, I'm very keen to get him on here as well, actually. Yeah, you should. Yeah, yeah, I should. I've taken up loads of your time, Thomas. Final question. It's the inevitable. What are your plans for the future? Near or far? Both. Both. I would really like to uh, continue with the
1: portrait series of Made by Bees. We just finished a few sculptures. That uh, One is based on Nefertiti. So I created the replica Made by Bees of the bust of Nefertiti. And uh, I created another one, which is similar to the bust of Michelangelo of Brutus. Mm the assassin of uh, Julius Caesar and the famous story and also you, my son. So this kind of, you know, killing a tyrant and Michelangelo did it because at that time, Brutus was considered as a good person. He Mm. killed a tyrant, but, you know, sometimes Brutus is also looked as a traitor and uh, Julius Caesar is a great general. So there's this duality of history. But in essence, I like the Made by Beast project to be extended more into architectural scale As I mentioned early in the interview, I think it would be interesting to use animal kingdom in this kind of metaphorical way as a quantum computer to try to see if we can get different type of information than we get from using, let's say, real uh, computers with their own methods of calculation and approximation. And they still look quite of dry. Uh, I mean, if you look at architecture these days that tries to mimic nature, it's always somehow still very artificial mimesis. Uh, mm. It's not real, you know. That's why I admire the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona by Gaudi, because somehow you look at it, uh, these interiors, and they're so irregular and regular in the same time that you think this is not made by the computer. You know, like yeah, yeah. there is nothing that's, Correct. And if you compare it, for example, with Frank Gehry, you feel completely the, the opposite. I feel Gehry is very computer-like design on a computer, and Gaudi, I feel like it's made on site. That's my feeling from Gaudi's uh, like, uh, work, that it's made naturally. like They just started from the foundation and started building it up, as like growing it. Mm. Um, so my hopes for the future is to make architectural scale artworks with the help of the bees
0: very good very good well we very much look forward to that thomas thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it thank you grant i appreciate it looking forward to hear it and also the other interviews thank you so much to discover more about thomas's work go to Thomaslibertini.com. there are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my instagram page grant on design and i have a new website You can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to my newsletter and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And if you feel so inclined, you can go to my Patreon page and make a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks so much for listening and please stay safe and well.